Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight, he once fronted that rock band with the funny name, but Darius Rucker is now much more than just Hootie and the Blowfish. Did your agent or your wife or somebody come to you and say, are you smoking something now you're going to be a country star? <laughs> He's blazing a bright new trail in the world of country music. I don't want to take pop songs and put fiddle on it and call it a country song. If it's not a country song, I don't want to play it. Don't think I don't think about it. Singer, songwriter, and 2014 Grammy Award winner, Darius Rucker, tonight on The Big Interview. Today, Darius Rucker is one of country music's hottest stars. In 2009, he won Best New Artist from the Country Music Association at the age of 43. And this year, he won a Grammy for Best Solo Country Performance. But there's a reason why he was a relatively late bloomer in the country world. That's because he had a previous life as a rock star, the frontman for the mega hit band Hootie and the Blowfish. My tour starts on the 29th, so I'll be pretty much home till then. It is a one-of-a-kind journey for the singer-songwriter who says his wide musical tastes are firmly rooted in his hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, where he still lives with his family. Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Oh, no, thank you for having me. Sir. I've got thank a lot you. of questions I want to ask, but did you come into this interview saying to yourself, gosh, there's one thing I want to get across. I'm, I hope he'll ask me this. No, not really. I mean, I was just, when I got a phone call and they said uh, that Dan Rather wanted to interview you, I mean, I was just, actually thought, I thought they were kidding. I <laughs> thought my manager was, was, was joking on me, but I'm just honored to be in your presence. I mean, I went to the University of South Carolina and I majored in broadcast journalism. I didn't one of the know reasons, that. 
One of the reasons I did is because I was wanted to be the next Dan Rather. I just thought you, you know, you were <laughs> such a big part of my childhood growing up. Well, listen, if you decide to give up music, let me know. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll find a place for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but did you seriously think about going into broadcasting? Yeah, I mean, so I wanted to be in broadcasting. I wanted to be a newscaster and sportscaster and do that, do all that stuff. That's what I went to school for. Well, that didn't happen, but it didn't work out all that badly. No, I'll tell you, I'm doing okay. This job's pretty good. I'll take it. <laughs> well, let's talk about how you got to where you are. Give me the biography. Yeah, I grew up in Charleston. I was uh, one of six kids, one of five for until I was 11. Then my little brother came along, and ever since I was four years old, all I wanted to do was sing. I mean, I used to, I used to sit around the house and sing Al Green songs for my mom's friends, using a little a little salt and pepper shaker as my microphone. Then I, I would do that all the time. It was just everything. And I was I was lucky. I had a, I had a mom who really let me do what I wanted to do musically. Because I was an AM radio kid, and I just listened to the radio and turned to a song that you know, when I heard a song I liked, I'd listen to it. And you know, my brothers and sisters would give me a hard time, you know, because I listened to everything, you know, rock and roll, R and B, country, whatever was on the radio. If I liked it, I listened to it. And uh, you know, I get I get some grief from my brothers, especially my oldest brother, about uh, you know, why you listen to that white boy music, and I'd always hear my mom go, "Let him listen to what he wants to listen to," and and so I just listened to everything. Well, let's talk about growing up in South Carolina. When did you come with memory age? About what year? About four and five. I, I can remember things from my, from being four years old, and I remember, you know, kindergarten being in, in when I was five years old. I remember a lot of a pretty good amount of things from those years. That's when it really started. That's for me when I really start remembering. And we're in the 1980s. Oh, it was in the 70s. It was. Uh, I guess 71, 72. Well, what was South Carolina like for you at that time? Oh, it was a lot. It was Charleston was a small. I wouldn't say a small town, but it was. It wasn't like it is now. It was for me. It was awesome. You know, I, even though we didn't have much, I didn't. I didn't know that until I got older. You know, we. I had a bunch of brothers and sisters and cousins around that we always played and had a great time. So I, I loved my childhood and, and it was awesome. But you know. And then you look back, and it was it was I wouldn't say it was never hard, but you know, Charleston had a way of keeping you in your place back in the seventies. Charleston had a way of keeping you in your place. Yeah. Well, in Charleston's view, where was your place? What was your? You place? know, I was just a little black kid living in in, in in an all black neighborhood, and I wasn't really supposed to. I don't know if I was supposed to be anything, make anything out of my life. You know, it was it was. Such a different time. It was on the heels of the, you know, of the civil rights movement, and and it was it was just a different time in the early '70s. Did you go to a, a segregated school no. when you first started? Well, kindergarten was segregated. I went to an all-black kindergarten, but as soon as I got in the first grade, it, it was integrated schools. And were you aware of that? What used to say that things had changed between kindergarten and school? When you were in that neighborhood, everybody talked about it so much. You know, like I, you know, the civil rights movement had just really happened. We, you know, all this had really, schools had really just gotten integrated right before I started going there. Right. And you know, so you know, I talked to my co my older cousins and my older brothers and sisters who went to integrated schools, and they, you know, they were like, it's just different now. And for me, it was, you know, it was just about the only thing I knew. Growing up, Rucker enjoyed playing football. Early on, like a lot of young boys, he thought he might be good enough for the pros. But once in high school, he changed his focus to music. I realized I wasn't going to play in the NFL. 
And so I told myself I need to concentrate on the singing thing. And that was my high school was when I quit playing football and got in the Middleton Singers. We were a great, great show choir. We were one of the best in the state. And, and we would just, uh, that was just life for me. That was the reason I went to school. You know, I mean, I, I was an okay student. I was a B student. And uh, I was one of those kids that didn't have to study. You know, they just, you know, I, I could just go to school and get a B. But it was, Middleton Singers was everything for me. It was why I got up in the morning, why I, I went to school. It was, it was to be part of that group that I thought was so great. I think a lot of people would be surprised to find that in, in your homies you listen to country music. Yeah, for me it was the radio. It was, I just, I thought it sounded great, you know? And then Kenny Rogers came along and that was huge for me. I mean, that was when, Kenny Rogers was that guy that was awesome for me because I could hear him you know, you flip through a country station, you hear a Kenny Rogers song, then you hear a Buck Owens song, and then you flip to a pop station and you hear Kenny Rogers song, and then you hear a, a you know, a Cheap Trick song. And it, for me, it was, I just thought this guy is just, I just thought he was great. He was, when I was a kid, he was one of the probably biggest, three, three biggest influences in my musical life, because he was just everywhere. Coward of the County, and, and they, they were so real and vivid, and the stories were so, you know, you knew what it was about. I just loved Kenny Rogers. He was, he was huge for me. Well, he's got to know when to, yeah, when to walk away it remains a classic to this Absolutely. day. I remember being young and hearing The Gambler and just going, you know, thinking, how do you sit down and come up with that? You know, how do you sit down and come up with a story that that's vivid? And I mean, you could see it. You, it was like a movie in your head when you listened to that song. I, I loved it. Well, Charlie Pride was, to my knowledge, the first singer of African-American heritage who really cracked through in the country. Were you aware of Charlie Pride? Oh, absolutely. Everybody was aware of Charlie Pride. He was, you know, it was it was one of those things when I did listen to country music, my mom would always say, you know, you know, make sure you, you know, you know who Charlie Pride is? You know, of course I know who Charlie Pride is. He was, he was so big, because he was, like you said, he was the only African-American doing it. Kiss an angel, good morning. Over like the devil when you get back home. You know, I was, that was a shocker for me when I started evidence in country music and, I didn't think about it, and then I had my first hit, my first hit, and somebody came up and told me I was the first African American in 30 years or something. To Probably have a hit since country Charlie music. Pride. Yeah, since Charlie Pride, and that was I was like, wow, that's just crazy to think about. But Charlie was he was big in in that community. He was he was somebody doing something that we weren't supposed to do, and he was he was proving everybody wrong. So he was big for us. Don't think I don't think about it. In 2008, Rucker's single, Don't Think I Don't Think About It, reached number one. It was the first time in 25 years that an African-American artist had a number one song on the country chart. The last was Charlie Pride's 1983 hit, Night Games. You mentioned Kenny Rogers, and it's one of the things that you said to yourself, you'd hear these great songs, The Gambler and other songs, and say, how does he do that? How does he put that together? Now you write songs. You write most of the songs you sing. Tell us about the process. How do you do that? For me, it's I, no matter if I'm writing by myself or I'm writing with somebody, I always write about something about my life. Every, most songs I write are about my life at some point. Maybe if even if it was 20 years ago, you know, you just put yourself in that place again and write it. And and I just find. Being honest in your songs are, is a lot better than trying to write some fiction. You know, you've written 
you know, songs that were fiction, but most of the songs I write, at some point, it's about me. And so when you're telling a story about you, it seems to be a lot easier for me. Well, you get an idea, you think of some words or a title of a song, do you write it down right away? What do you do? Or you wake up in the middle of the night? I've done all that. I've, I've, I've been at a point where I wrote it down, and now we're lucky the iPhone is so great that, you know, like I've, I've lost so many songs because I, you know, you come up with this great idea in your head, you go, I'll write that down later and you can't remember it later. And now with the iPhone, you just, you know, sing it into the voice memo and you, it's there forever. And, and so that that's really made songwriting a lot easier for me because you just come up with these ideas and just put them right down and then you can go finish it later. I wouldn't say you're one of the few, but it's not everybody who writes their own songs and then sings their own songs. I consider myself a songwriter. And, and so I love, singing songs about me and songs about my life. And so if you're gonna do that, you gotta, you gotta write them. Your name is synonymous with Charleston, South Carolina. The street here named for you. What does Charleston mean to you? Charleston means home. When I was a kid, I used to say all the time, I'm getting out of this town. And I moved to Columbia for 10 years, going to college and starting the band. And the band had decided that we needed to stay in Columbia to make it together. And then when things got big, we actually had a meeting where we said to each other, let's you can live, where, live wherever you want. And the only place I wanted to go was Charleston, South Carolina. You can see it in the clothes I wear. You can hear it when I talk. Ball cap boots and jeans and a little southern draw. I could be up in Ohio, back home in Carolina. Don't matter what state I'm in, I'm in a southern state of mind. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Darius Rucker. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Darius Rucker. Darius Rucker's rise to fame began in the 90s as the lead singer of the band Hootie and the Blowfish. That band's most successful album, the multi-platinum Cracked Rearview, is the 16th all-time best-selling album in the United States. By the end of the 90s, Hootie and the Blowfish had sold millions of albums and won two Grammys, one for Best New Artist, the other for the band's mega-hit, Let Her Cry. 
first of all, what about this name, Hootie and the Blowfish? Oh, it was. I was in this a show choir in college called uh, Carolina Alive. I went to South Carolina, and, and we had a group called Carolina Alive. And we, I used to get people nicknames all the time. And uh, there was one guy who had big eyes and wore glasses and looked like an owl. And I started calling him Hootie. And, and his best friend uh, had these huge cheeks on him. And one night I called him the Blowfish, and the whole group started calling him the Blowfish. And one, uh, we were at a party one night, and they walked in, and I said. I'll never forget this night. I said, look, Hootie and the Blowfish. And in the back of my mind, I'd lied to myself. I said, what a great name for a band. And we started the band like a week later. And I said to Mark that we're going to name the band Hootie and the Blowfish. And he said, whatever. And, you know, I try not to have any regrets in life, you know. And I never thought that people would call me Hootie from naming a band that. But, you know, that, that came out of that. But the thing about that name is whether you like it or not, you just never forget it. It was one of those names that once you heard it, you always remembered it. And so I think it helped us a lot more than it hurt us. So you're an African-American fronting, if you will, a white band. Oh, yeah. Was there any discussion of that, or did you think, well, this may be difficult coming out of South Carolina? We didn't discuss it, but we played some places that, you know, we played some bars where we thought we were going to have to fight our way out. You know, we played some fraternity houses where we almost had to fight our way out. You know, I, I realized early on I had to have a thick skin because I heard, I heard some things early on that was just, I mean, Vicious. I mean, people said some vicious things, and and it hurt. I mean, it, it really hurt because it was just I'm just not that kind of guy, and you know the guys around me weren't that kind of guys, and we thought we we're gonna have to fight our way out of a lot of places. And but it was just I learned early on that if I was gonna do this, I was gonna have to have a real thick skin, and I do. And you know I, I can take a lot of stuff, but I still think back, and it still hurts. You know. One of the reputations that the band uh, Hootie and the Blowfish had was they play rock and roll but it's not angry rock and roll. Yeah, that was, that was, and for us, when we were starting to break out, that was tough for us, because grunge was so big, and grunge was so full of anger and despair, and, and even when we got our record deal with Atlantic, uh, one of the big guys at Atlantic went to the president and told him he couldn't put Cracked Review out. Said, uh, if you put this record out, we'll be the laughing stock of music. And because, because it was really, happy. Yeah, because it was happy. It was, it was just, it wasn't grunge, and grunge was everywhere. Grunge was king. What did you think about going that direction under the, what used to be called, man wants a green suit, turn on the green light, if grunge is in, you're going to do grunge? Nah, we were, we knew we were going to be true to ourselves. We were already writing the songs we wanted to play and doing what we were going to do, and we never thought, never once thought about going grunge. There was enough grunge bands in the Carolinas trying to do that. We were just, and we had already staked our niche. You know, like I, we were playing for nine years before we got a record deal. And so we, we already had our following and the things we thought about, thought about changing the name and thought if we did that, we'll be starting all over. You know, thought, you know never thought about changing the music because it was who we were. But after nine years, you finally got a record deal. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that happened. We, uh, the, you know, there wasn't a lot of people looking for bands in South Carolina. And this was before uh, computers and before, you know, sound scan and all that stuff. And so the way, the Billboard charts worked was they called up a record store and asked them what their top 50 selling records were. And so we put out a little EP called Coochie Pop and we put it out, we sold it at our shows and we sold it through like a few mom and pops record stores that we knew. We sold like 50, 60,000 just out of the back of the van. And they, Billboard magazine called a few, like three or four weeks in a row and asked the top 50 and those record stores said we were the third best selling record they had. And so people started going, who's this band out selling, you know, U2 and Pearl Jam and, you know, in the, in the Carolinas, we've got to go see who they are. So they came to see us. They came to find and everybody came. And we had, there was this great guy named Tim Summer at Atlantic that we just fell in love with, and so we decided to go with Atlantic. 
Then uh, we make this record, we make, we make Cracked Review, and uh, we hear from Tim and some people up at Atlantic that there were people fighting not to put it out because it wasn't grunge. I mean, really, people telling Danny Goldberg, who was the president at the time, that you can't put this out. We will be the laughing stock of music if you put this record out. But he put it out. But he was, he was totally determined to put it out, and he was totally determined to push it. And he put it out, and uh, actually for the first couple months, you know, it was doing great in the Carolinas and the Southeast, but nothing major. And then one day we got the luckiest thing that's ever happened. Uh, a radio station in New York decided to play Hold My Hand one time. And they played it, and it just happened that David Letterman was driving home from, his, from work that night. And the one time they played it, David Letterman heard it, and the story goes, he heard the song and he pulled on, the, it was a Tuesday. He heard the song and he pulled on the side of the road and he called his, he called his booking agent and said, I want that band this Hootie the Wolfish band on my show. And they booked us for that Friday. Fizzle on my lamppost Trying to find a thought that's escaped When they called and said, Letterman wants you, we couldn't believe it. I mean, we, we thought maybe someday we'd get to play Letterman, but you know, nothing was really happening with our record. And, and, and he says he wants us on, and it was really overnight. That Friday, we woke up being just some band, struggling band, and we played that Friday night, and that, the next Monday, we were about to be the biggest band in the world. What did he say to you when you appeared on the program that night, or did he say anything? He's, he's famous or notorious, depending on the point of view, for not saying much yeah. before you come on. He didn't say anything before we came on, but after we played, he came up and told us how great he thought the record was. I mean, and, and that, he became our biggest supporter. I think there was, there was a run for, I think four months, where every night on his show he said he was eating blowfish. Wow. Every, oh, every night. And it was just, that was amazing for us. You know, and the, the best thing ever is, I think the second or third time we play, we play and he looks straight at the camera and says, if you don't have, pulls up our record and says, if you don't have this record, there's something wrong with you. Well, now you're off and going. Yes. I mean, you, you have a big smash record, one, one after another, as a matter of fact. Yeah. We, we, it's just kept coming. We played from, we went straight from playing clubs to playing the biggest arenas in the country and playing the garden. I had three nights at the garden in a row and, and just going, it was crazy. It was, for us, we were lucky because we had the four of us. We had the four of us and we were really close. We were like brothers. I don't know the music business very well, but I know it well enough to know that like a lot of other businesses or professions, including journalism, you can have a very tight-knit group, but once you get to the top or near the top, tension is developed. Did that happen with the band? No, no, not at all. And I think one of the main, I think a lot of times with bands, the tension happens because there's one guy who thinks he's more important than the others. And we never, none of us ever felt that way. But that would be you with this man, I mean, realistically. Yeah, but I never, I always knew that, that, that I couldn't, we wouldn't have made it if it wasn't the four of us. And there was never a moment where I thought, you know, I should be making more money, these guys, or I just never thought that way. It was just the four of us. We had, we had our business set up. We were doing it that way, and we were going to do it that way. And we and like we were like brothers. We were we were best friends. And you know, we we'd come off the road, and we'd all go our separate ways. And 30 minutes later, we're calling each other, going, you know, where are we going out today? And I never let people get in my ear with that. You know, if somebody started getting in my ear with that, you know, get away from me. That's not how we operate. That's not how we do business. And so it never got to that for me. It was always the four of us. Your favorite. Who did the Blowfish song? 
Oh, hard to pick just one. It's hard to pick one because I think we've done some great songs, but the song for me that still gives me chills is Let Her Cry. I mean, I, I, that when we play it, it gives me chills. I remember, I remember writing it. I, I remember, you know, sitting there, sitting down and writing that song and, and waking up the next morning thinking it's, you know, not going to be that great and listening back to it and going, wow. I'm very interested because I'm told that with some artists, they have, you know, a song that help make them. But everywhere they go, people ask it to be sung and they get tired of singing it. One thinks Willie Nelson with blue eyes crying in the rain, asked to play it everywhere he goes. Uh, but you don't feel that way. Not about one song. I, I love still. We've played Only Want to Be With You for 30 years now. And I, every time I play it, I love it. And for me, it's the reaction that you get. I mean, as soon as they hear that first note in the crowd, Start screaming! I mean, I played it. I played three times in the show for that. You know, I mean, I, I I love playing those songs. I love I love the fact that I have songs that I have to play for the rest of my life. I mean, that's really awesome. That that something we wrote just in a little room somewhere has has become such an iconic thing that I have to play it every night. I love that. listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Darius Rucker. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Darius Rucker. It's unusual for a major artist to completely shift focus from one genre of music to another. But that's what Darius Rucker did in 2008 when he announced he would pursue a solo career in country music. The band, Hootie and the Blowfish, would go on hiatus. When and how did you decide to go country? In uh, about 1989 or 90, uh this guy named Radney Foster came out with this record called Del Rio, Texas, 1959. And I I loved country music and listened to it, but it was never something I thought, I'm gonna go play this someday. And then this record comes out. And really, from the first time I put it on, it blew my mind. I, I just really went, I mean, I, I called up, I'll never forget, I, I called up Mark and said, you gotta hear this Radney record. I mean, it's unbelievable. From that day on, I said it all the time to the band. You know, someday I'm, I'm gonna make country, I'm gonna make a country record someday. And, and so we're on the road constantly. We're on the road every year for like 10 years in a row at this point. And finally, Sony, our drummer, comes up and goes, you know, guys, I'm just tired of being on the road all the time. You know, let's, let's take some time off. And I said, okay, let's take some time off. And so I decided I was going to do my country record. And to be honest with you, I didn't think I get a record deal. Like Doc McGee, who's a big time manager, is our manager, and I told him I was doing a country record. And I told him, you know, I'm just going to do it in the basement with my buddies. Uh, I'm gonna get a bunch of buddies together, write some songs, and go record the band. Because I, I wouldn't have given me a record deal. I mean, why would you give the guy from Hootie and the Blowfish who had this great big career, and now he wants to do country music? You know, why give him a record deal? I was gonna say, did your agent 
your wife or somebody come to you and say, oh, are you smoking something very expensive? You, now you're going to be a country star? <laughs> you know, it was, it was funny because my wife was the one who really was, was pushing me. She's like, you know, you, you should do it, you should do it. You, know, you can sing anything. And, and Doc, I got really lucky. Doc was, uh, Doc, who my manager, was at dinner with, with the president of uh, Capitol Records, Mike Dungan, one night. And he says to Mike Dungan, you know, I've got this guy I want you to sign. And Mike Duncan, Duncan was like, who, who? And he's like, and Doc being Doc said, you don't trust me? You know, I'm telling you, it's going to be great. He's like, all right. And, and so he t finally tells Duncan, it's me. It's Darius Rucker of Hooting the Bowfish. And I got so lucky because Mike Duncan looked at him and said, you know, I never really got that Hooting the Bowfish band, but I always thought that guy was a country singer. And they called me up that night, and I had a record deal with Capitol Records. We are one heartbeat in the dark. went to Nashville. Did you have any reservations about that? Or did someone say to you, listen, you're not going to make it in Nashville. Nashville's not your kind of town. The best thing that happened for me is I wasn't expecting to make it. For me, I had gotten lucky. Somebody else was going to pay for my record. I was going to get to make my country record. I was going to have that for me in my heart. And I could listen to it when I wanted to listen to it. And I didn't think that it was going to work. Like, even, even Dungan, he always says that even the people in his own building told him he was crazy. He, he always says that he uh, called the 13 people he thought were the tastemakers of Nashville when he decided to sign me, and 12 of them told him he was crazy. And the one guy who didn't say he was crazy is the guy who ended up producing my records. And, <laughs> and so I don't, I don't know if any of us thought it could happen, but we made such a great first record and our first single. And then the thing that really did it for me was we did a radio tour where I got in the car with a radio rep and we drove around the country to 110 radio I didn't know stations. anybody did that anymore. I mean, you read about Tammy Wynette, uh, Merrill Haggard people doing it at one stage in their career, but we were talking about the 1950s or 60s. Oh, yeah, well, that was funny. When I told them I wanted to do that, they were surprised, the label was surprised. They, because they, and I, they asked me, why do you want to do it? I was like, because I want to be the new guy. The one thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to show up in Nashville going, you know, I sold 30 million records, I did this, because that, that wasn't going to matter. What was going to matter is people getting to know me. And on that radio tour, I tell you, I, I, had, I had radio programmers tell me that they never thought they'd play me. They, I had radio programmers tell me straight up, you know, I don't know if my audience is going to accept you. Not everybody would have done that, having reached the pinnacle as you had with rock and roll. I knew that was the only way I could make it. I, I knew the only way we could really make a dent in country music was if the people who were in charge of radio knew who I was. And sitting in front of somebody and talking like this is so much different than calling on the phone or, 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 or just sending your record out and saying, people plays. You know, I went in and I said to guys, you know, well, let me play the song for you. If you want to play it, great. If not, I understand. You know, I, like I've said, even said to them, I wouldn't have given me a record deal, so I'll understand if you wouldn't want to play my record. And, and it was just, it was really one of those moments where I was really glad that I was me. Because 
I've never thought I was that great. I've never thought that anything I did, I, didn't, I, didn't, I haven't cured cancer, I haven't done anything. You know, I'm just a kid from South Carolina who's got an okay voice. And, and so I took that and went around and next thing I knew, you know, it was, it was great. The first place we went was we went to San Antonio. And I'm in a meeting in, in, in uh, Nashville with Mike and, and a bunch of guys, and Mike sees we're going to San Antonio, and he starts yelling at his radio staff. He's like, why are you sending them to Texas first? He's like, you know, they're not going to play it until everybody else is playing it. You know, he's going to get crushed. But the true story, we, we went to the radio station, we had this great guy, George King, and George and I have a great meeting, and he loves this song. And so he says, I'm adding it tomorrow. And the song was? Don't think I don't think about it. And he says, I'm adding it tomorrow. And so the record label goes, you know, we're going for a big push in two weeks. Can you wait two weeks? He's like, yeah, I'll wait two weeks. So we leave the radio station and he calls my rep and goes, I can't wait two weeks. I'm adding it tomorrow. And that was when things just started to take off because I always thank him so much. I tell him I'll do anything for him because once you're in Texas, once they're playing you in Texas, you, no matter where you go, if they go, this is, you know, this is not country enough, you say, they're playing it in Texas. And that was such a huge help for me. Well, that lays down an ace. Oh, yeah. But Willie Nelson's country, if you make it there. You can make it anywhere, you're, you're <laughs> absolutely. One of the most prestigious honors bestowed upon country musicians is an invitation to become a member of the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee. And on this night, Darius Rucker was in for a surprise. Would you like to be the newest member of the Grand Ole Opry? Oh, you're kidding me. No, you're kidding me. Tonight? Really? No. You haven't answered. Oh, yes, I would. Darius Rucker. October 16th becomes the newest member of the Grand Ole Opry. Since the Opry's inception in 1925, only a little over 200 artists have been invited to become members. Thanks for wanting to be a country music singer. You wanted to, Darius wanted to. Congratulations. Why do you think it's working for you in country? Because I, I think the main reason was that people realized how real it was for me. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about, you know, trying to be a superstar. I was just going to do this in the basement with my buddies. It was about the music. I wanted to be country. I wanted to, be, I wanted to play country music. And you wanted to play country music. I grew up in an environment in Texas where it was Ernest Tubb, or at least Hank Williams, didn't sure. sing it. I didn't know it. Uh -huh. But for me, country music was then and remains to this day in many ways. Uh, mama, pickup truck, beer, prison, trains, sure. lost love. Absolutely. Is that the kind of music you sing? That's definitely a part of what I do. I mean, and country music today is so much about family. And, and that that's... That's what the, the songs that seem to work for me are the songs that are about family. You know, songs like, you know, Don't Think I Don't Think About It or, or uh, uh, It Won't Be Like This For Long. It won't be like this for long. 
You know, the songs that are really huge for me are all songs about family and about about living just a, a regular great life with, with the people that you love. And that was the, my main thing when I started, that if it's not country, I don't want to play it. I don't want to take pop songs and put fiddle on it and call it a country song. If it's not a country song, I don't want to play it. Headed down south to the land of the pines I'm coming my way and I'm North Carolina Staring off the road and pray to God I see headlights I made it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers And I'm over for Riley, I could see my baby tonight So When you started this new country career, did you think to yourself, I'm gonna get back to the Grammys, or did, was that too wild a dream? Wild, too wild a dream. Didn't think that, didn't think, you know, didn't think I'd win a CMA, didn't think, you know, I didn't think any of that. I, I just, I was making it for me. So I never thought that any of this stuff would happen to me. Now, your True Believers Tour, how'd you come up with the name? It was just, such a perfect way to describe where I am, you know. I mean, that and that, that tours for the people that believe in, in what I do and believe in in me as a musician, as a country musician, and, and I just thought it was a perfect name. You, know, you tour for your own music now. Uh, any chance that Hootie and the Blowfish will have a reunion in 2014? Not 2014. You know, we uh, actually had a meeting about that this year because we. We've never broken up. We still play four or five shows a year, and we still have our charity gigs and stuff that we do that's very important to us, and so we still play. And we had a meeting this year, and, and I mean, even, you know, the guys were saying with what I'm, I mean, I'm making history with this country, with the country thing, and you know, I, I, did, I didn't wanna just put that on the, I, I can't put that on the back burner right now. Well, particularly having once broken through against all odds. Yeah, you know, and now it's, it's great. I'm playing the big arenas and the, the big outdoor amphitheaters and, and life is, and I'm really getting a foothold in this music that I love and, and it, I just didn't want to walk away from it. You know, I'm sure there'll be another, you know, maybe the 21st anniversary of Crack Review or something, we'll get together and do another record and a huge, you know, tour for all the fans that have, that used, that were so loyal to us and everything, but, Right now, you know, I'm a country singer. Country's my day job. You know, Hootie's gonna be that, that uh, one-off that we do one more time. What's your all-time favorite solo? Oh man, all-time favorite solo? Uh, oh, no, no doubt about it. The all my all-time favorite thing I've ever done is uh, when I sang Amazing Grace one night a cappella. And it was just one of those moments and my mom had died, and when my mom died, we, I, I, I couldn't pull myself to get off the road. It was my, it was everything to me. And, 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 you know, she dies, and we go to the funeral, and then a few days later, we're in a club, and I sang Amazing Grace a cappella, and it was just, that's my greatest musical moment on stage. Now, what is it about Amazing Grace that makes it resonate with so many people? The song is, the, the words are, are so 
amazingly beautiful and so, you know, amazing grace that, you know, that saved a wretch like me. You know, that's, that's, that's really what religion is all about. And then the thing that I think really gets people is the melody is so sad. It's so sad that it, it just goes into your heart and it just, you know, ties a knot in your heart and, just, and when it starts, wants to pound out of your chest because the song is so perfect. I have this mental image. Your mother has passed. It's a month or two later. You're at a club and you sing an acapella in the club? In the club. What was the reaction? Oh, there were people crying because I was crying. You know, there were people, you know, just shocked. It was one of those things where one of the, one of the hardest things to do in the club is get people to be quiet between, you know, and this place you could hear a pin drop. It's unfair to you, but can you just sing a few bars of Amazing Grace right now? <clears throat> Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was, was lost, oh, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Got a baby girl sleeping in my bedroom and her mama laughing in my arms. There's a sound of rain on the rooftop and the game's about to start. I don't really know how I got here, but I'm so glad that I did. And it's crazy to think that one little thing could have changed all of it. Maybe it Darius Rucker is everywhere now. He recently performed at the 2014 Academy of Country Music Awards. And he sang the national anthem at the NCAA basketball championship game. Despite his busy schedule, Rucker also passionately dedicates time to his philanthropic efforts. Let's talk about some of the things you do besides make very popular music, now popular country music, play golf, yep. father, husband, take your kids to school yep. when you're in town. What about Musicians on Call? Musicians on Call is a great organization where uh, they just get musicians to go to a hospital and you just get your guitar and I like to do it on children's wards because you go in and you know there's a kid in there who's sick and they're in there usually with a parent or something and you ask them if they want to hear a song and you play a song for them and I've done it a few times and so many times when I do it you just you look at their faces and you could in just for three and a half minutes you're trying to help them forget you trying to help the parents forget that the kid's sick. Have you done it often enough to know what song is requested the most for the kids? Well, nowadays it's, it's Wagon Wheel. <laughs> nowadays everybody wants to hear Wagon Wheel. The kids, the, the parents want to hear, you know, Let Her Cry or Hold My Hand, and the kids want to hear Wagon Wheel, so you, you, we play Wagon Wheel. Rucker is an avid golfer, and he's combined his love for the game and his desire to give back when he and his Hootie and the Blowfish bandmates started their own charitable golf tournament. Monday after the Masters, or MAM, teams up professionals, celebrities, and amateur golfers to raise money. 
This is our 20th year doing it. It's uh, in, in Myrtle Beach these days, and it, we, it's so we, lucky. We get so, so many big-name golfers to come, and they just come from Augusta, they stop in Myrtle Beach for the day, and then head to Hilton Head for the next tournament. And the proceeds go for what? To, now they go to the Hootie and the Bullfish Foundation, and we try to be as hands-on as we can helping charities that has to do, have to do with children's education. We were sitting in Seattle one day, and USA Today they came out with their uh, Fifth, their rankings for the states and school, in, in education. In South Carolina was 49, and we were just angry, for lack of a better word. We were just angry, and so we came and we asked how we could help, how we could help with the grassroots. You don't want to give a bunch of money to, to a school district, and then you know half of it goes for administration, and and then you know. So we try to do as much hands-on stuff and helping the little, the little groups that are trying to help education and, and it goes, it's really good, you know, we, we're endowed now. I mean, that's something gonna, that's gonna last after we're gone and, and that's something that makes us feel really good about it. And that, that's one of the things that we know, one of the reasons for us to get together every year too and see each other and have a good time. Do you do uh, social media? You do Facebook? I was addicted to Twitter for a minute there and, and I had to get off of it because trolls, are, people are so mean. And I'm just not that guy that wants to put up with that stuff. You mean people so People mean. are just vicious. People can be vicious on those. You know, there's, there's always trolls on there that are just trying to start stumping. And I wasn't that guy who could let it go. You know, I was, I'd get in these Twitter wars with people. And I, finally, I th and it was like, it was the first thing I did in the morning was look at Twitter. And the last thing I did before I went to bed was look at Twitter. And I, and I thought, that's just, just occupying my life so much. That being the case, what do you tell your children about the internet, Facebook? Oh, we, uh, we, you know, we, we, we let them, you know, they, they have their Instagram accounts and stuff like that, but we monitor that, that stuff. Like, I got my sons on my phone and my wife has my daughters on her phone and we monitor that stuff because it's so easy to be uncool when you're hiding behind your, a keyboard somewhere. And people are always, always do it, but we just tell them to be careful and, and, and we always let, you know, I got an 18 year old, I let her know whatever is on, that whatever goes on that internet is there forever. You can never take it down. So if you don't want it to be there forever, make sure it doesn't get on there. It might be time for me to ask one of my favorite questions when I talk to people. You've been very generous with your time and with yourself, and I appreciate it greatly. Yes, you're a singer, a husband, and a father, but, but who are you? Who are you? I think at the, at the end of the day, I'm just some a little kid from Charleston, South Carolina that that got really lucky. I, I consider myself a dad and, and a husband. You know, all the other things are just what I do. You know, when I when I when I die, I want to be remembered for 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 my family and my kids, and and and, and doing the right thing. You know, and uh, like I say all the time, the only thing I want on my tombstone is he was a nice guy. That's it. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Oh no, you're damn rather. You always ask all the right questions. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, it's, I'm still, honestly, sir, and I mean, I, I'm still, I've done a lot of things in my career, but this is one of the things that I, I will be talking about forever, that I got to sit across from Dan Rather and do an interview. Uh, that's just unbelievable. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. Unworthy of it, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv.
And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.